Prez in Columbia. Specifically, he primarily uh, preaches on Sunday night in their service there. Uh, Dr. Davis has had an interesting career in ministry. It seems the Lord has put him into pastorates and then put him into seminary professorships and back to pastorates and back to seminary professorships. And I had the privilege and the blessing of catching him on his seminary swing and got to learn from him uh, Old Testament and Hebrew for three years. And it was a wonderful privilege. Just one quick little anecdote. Um, our first year in seminary, Nikki and I were attending a, a particular church and he guest preached on one Sunday morning during our first semester in seminary. And my wife and I, who had both been in churches a lot by that point, after he was finished, looked at me and said, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon before until now. I hope you learn to do that while you're here. And I'll leave it to her to decide if that happened or not. So Dr. Davis, please come and share with us. Our scripture today is, is from Jonah chapter 1, and uh, so we, let's read through that and get it in front of us uh, as, we, as we begin to look at the word. Jonah chapter 1, and verses 1 to 16. Now, let me begin with apology, which you're not supposed to do, none of that, but um, I'm, I'm accustomed when that word or that Name the Lord appears in the, in your Bibles, and Lord is spelled in all capital letters. That means that's the covenant name, the personal name of the God of the Bible. And I'm accustomed to using Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, for that. Uh, and so I don't have to be an old dog who learns new tricks today. Let me go ahead and do that. And if it's unfamiliar to you, you just translate it back into the Lord with all capital letters like it usually appears, all right? My translation may vary a little bit from what you have, but let's look at the text. Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 16. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. Then Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he gave its fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. But Yahweh hurled a great wind onto the sea, and a great storm came up on the sea, and the ship seemed likely to be smashed up. And the sailors were afraid and cried out each one to his God. And they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below deck, had lain down, and was sound asleep. Then the captain came near to him and said, Why are you sleeping away? Rise, call to your God. It may be that God will give a thought to us and we will not perish. Now each said to his companion, Come on and let's throw lots, that we might know on whose account this disaster has come on us. So they threw lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. So they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account this disaster has come on us? What is your work, and where do you come from? What's your country, and from what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and Yahweh the God of heaven is the one I fear. He made the sea and the dry land. Then the men feared a great fear, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from Yahweh's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you 
that the sea quiet down for us, for the sea kept storming on. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's on my account that this great storm is upon you. Now the men tried to break through to return to dry land, but were not able, for the sea kept storming against them. So they called to Yahweh and said, Ah, Yahweh, please do not let us perish for the life of this man and do not charge against us innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done as you have pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. So the men feared Yahweh with a great fear. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they vowed vows. Charles Spurgeon, the great British Baptist preacher of the 19th century, when he was about 19 or 20 years old, was preaching in a village church, a village of Water Beach. I don't think it was too far from Cambridge. At any rate, uh, there was a fellow who happened to be the mayor of Cambridge uh, who asked young Spurgeon if... On the previous Sunday, he had told his people that if a thief got into heaven, he would pick the angel's pockets. And Spurgeon said, well, yes, I, I did say, I said that, that uh, if, if a man got into glory without his nature being changed, he would be the same as before. And I said by way of illustration that if a thief then got into heaven, he would be unchanged. He wouldn't be any different. He would go around picking the angel's pockets. And uh, <clears throat> the, the, the mayor said, My dear boy, don't you know that angels have no pockets? Spurgeon said, No, I didn't know that but I'm glad to be assured of it by someone who does know. I'll set that right at the first possible opportunity. Well, the next Monday morning, he went into Mr. Brimley's, that was his name, Mr. Brimley's shop, and he said, I, I made that right yesterday, sir. He said, uh, what, what did you make right? He said, oh, about the angel's pockets. And Brimley said, what did you say? Well, Spurgeon said, I... I told them that I had made a mistake when I'd preached to them before and that, that uh, I had said that if a thief got into heaven, he would, he would pick the angel's pockets. And I had been assured by a man, uh, the mayor of Cambridge, uh, that, that angels had no pockets, and so I wanted to correct it. And so I told them that should a thief get into heaven with his nature still unchanged, that he would go around stealing feathers from the angel's wings. And Brimley said, you didn't say that. Oh, but I did. I did, though. Well, that's sort of the way Jonah 1 strikes you, isn't it? It's one of those surely you didn't uh, kind of texts and passages. Sometimes the Bible's like that. Uh, you, re you, you come onto a text that just leaves you aghast. And Jonah 1 does that kind of thing. Uh, you think as you read this, surely God would not act this way. And surely He would not have servants like this. And surely 
he wouldn't mess with a bunch of pagan sailors, would he? But as Spurgeon said to Mr. Brimley, I did though. Yeah, God is like this, really. Uh, so I want us to look then at Jonah 1. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is what Jonah 1 tells us. An untamed God uses an unusual providence to gather an unexpected congregation. I just want to unpack that as we look at Jonah 1. First of all, an untamed God. Verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. Now I want you to notice about God as he shows himself in Jonah 1. Notice the assumptions that God makes. You know, verses 1 and 2. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, there's a couple of assumptions that God makes there. One assumption is that all nations and superpowers are subject and accountable to him. You go to Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. I'm the one who has jurisdiction and sway over even pagan superpowers. Now, Assyria was in eclipse, really, at this time, at Jonah's time, but it was still could be called a superpower. But they're accountable to Yahweh, Israel's God. And then, he also assumes that servants owe obedience to him. You, Jonah, rise and go to Nineveh and preach against it. Now, what's interesting there is that it covers the whole waterworks, doesn't it? Um, that uh, God assumes he has, can we put it this way, international sovereignty. Sovereignty, big word, means God's in charge, all right? He, he assumes he has international sovereignty. All nations, even like Assyria, are subject to his judgment. But he also assumes he has individual sovereignty. You, Jonah, you owe me obedience. You go and preach against it. So you have the whole thing. He has international sovereignty. He has individual sovereignty. God's over the, the, the massive, but he's also over the minute. He's got the whole package there. And he doesn't argue this. He assumes it. This is the way he is. Notice, though, his servant Jonah there in verse 3 particularly. What's Jonah's intent? Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence and so on. Uh, that's a little bit of a surprise because you're used to, to God calling prophets and you're used to a Jeremiah perhaps saying, Ah, oh, I can't speak, I'm only a youth. Or you're used to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2 and 3. And he may be angry and upset, but he does what Yahweh tells him to do. Uh, but here's Jonah. He's just, I don't want any part of that. And he walks away from it. He goes the other direction. We're just not a use to that kind of blatant rebellion. And what does it mean now in verse 3? It says it twice. He, he went to flee from Yahweh's presence. Now, what's, what's that mean? Uh, I, I think it means something kind of particular to a prophet. You don't have to look it up. But 1 Kings 17.1 and 2 Kings 5.16, you have this kind of phraseology. Let's take 1 Kings 17.1. Elijah is talking to Ahab, and he goes on oath. He says, as Yahweh lives, in whose presence I stand. 
in whose presence I stand. I stand in Yahweh's presence. What's Elijah saying? He's saying that as a prophet, I receive revelation or I receive orders from, from God. I stand in His presence as a prophet. I get my marching orders. I get my message from Him. And then I pass it on to others. So Yahweh's presence was where the prophet stood in order to receive God's directions and, and, and word. And then he passed it on. Now, I think that's the way it's using Yahweh's presence here. I don't think Jonah is, has, has, has in mind that he can actually go far enough away from Israel that he can actually get under and slither out beyond somewhere where, where Yahweh is not present. I don't think that... Jonah surely knew Psalm 139. He wasn't stupid. So he didn't think that he could actually get away somewhere where God's presence was not. But he meant this in a, this is meant in a kind of a, well, technical lingo. He wanted to get away from Yahweh's presence, that is, as the place where he would receive his marching orders as a prophet. He wanted to get away from that. And he apparently assumed that if he got far enough away, like maybe to the other end of the Mediterranean, that God wouldn't bother with him that he would take up some other local yokel prophet in Israel to do his job in Nineveh. That's probably what Jonah means by trying to get away from Yahweh's presence. He wants no part of Project Nineveh. Now what surprises us though is what God does. Do you notice verse 4? But Yahweh, and the, the subject Yahweh's emphatic there, but Yahweh hurled a great wind onto the sea, and a great storm came up on the sea, and so on. Now that verb hurled in verse 4, that's used four times in Jonah 1. It's used in verse 4. It's used in verse 5 of the, of the sailors throwing or hurling the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. It's used in verses 12 and 15 of hurling Jonah into the sea. But here, Yahweh hurled a great wind onto the sea. Isn't that interesting? Jonah... Jonah disobeys and God starts throwing things. Um, that's not the way we tend to think of the Lord. But he will not let Jonah get away from this. You see the sheer, shattering stubbornness of God that he will not let Jonah Get out of this. That's not the way we usually think. You see the myth, we could call it the Christian myth perhaps, that this text explodes. Um, you see, what you have here is this unmanageable God. And you see how this picture of God in Jonah 1 destroys some of the stuff we're sometimes fed in Christian circles what I call divine gentleman theology. Now let me just give you a clip. You don't need to know the context, but a little quotation <clears throat> from a book. It was uh, talking about the Christian service and that sort of thing uh, several years back uh, from a major evangelical publisher, it, it appeared. But this is what the author said. He, that is God, he will stop at nothing except our unwillingness to cooperate. 
That is the boundary he has chosen not to cross. End quote. We've heard that sort of thing before. You know. He will stop at nothing except our unwillingness to cooperate. That's a boundary God has chosen not to cross. Now, if Jonah knew English and if he read that, you know what his response would be? That sounds really good. I only wish it were true. Because it's not. You see what the text is showing you here. The text is showing you that Yahweh is not some celestial wimp who's imprisoned and frustrated by your lack of cooperation or by your resistance. He may leave you in your resistance. He may persuade you to change. Or he may simply smash your resistance. But your puny free will is a house of cards up against Yahweh's determination to do as he pleases. And if you think differently, you're worshiping a graven image. You're worshiping a domesticated God with a small g that you control. What you have in Jonah 1 is an untamed God. Let that percolate through your gray matter. Now secondly, you have here an unusual providence. An unusual providence. The last of verse 5 through verse 12. Let's, let's look at this. Uh, now, when we use providence, what do I mean by providence? I simply mean God's always interesting way of bringing his plans to pass. That's what we mean by providence. And here he does it through an unwilling servant, doesn't he? Through Jonah. But behind that unwilling servant is the unusual providence of God. Now, let's notice just something about that servant Jonah, by the way. You notice in verse 5 um, all the hubbub that was going on up on deck. But it says in the last of verse 5, But Jonah had gone down below deck, had lain down, and was sound asleep. That's rather interesting, isn't it? Um, sometimes disobedient servants are in great anguish, you know. Uh, you remember what David said in Psalm 32 about his unconfessed sin. And he said to God, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I was miserable. I was sapped in my strength, etc. Uh, it affected me even physically and all that sort of thing. That's not the case with Jonah. Uh, there's no evidence here uh, that Jonah was chewing his guts out or that he was overdosing on Mylanta or anything. No, he was relieved. He may be blatantly disobedient to God, but he goes down into the below deck and, and sacks out, and he's sound asleep. He has great subjective or inner peace, apparently. What's that mean? Uh, nothing, really. It just means that he had good feelings. He was relieved. Feelings don't mean much. I, I remember once... Uh, uh, member of one of our congregations um, was carrying on an, an adulterous affair with another woman. And yet, at that time, he said, I've had some of the best quiet times that I've ever had. Now, what's that mean? That doesn't mean much of anything. It means that he's shacking up with another woman and he feels warm and fuzzy toward God when he has quiet time. That's all it means. 
His feelings are not a good gauge of what's really the case. But Jonah had fine feelings. He had great inner peace. But he was blatantly unsubmissive to God. Uh, That's what we see here. Now, I want you to notice how God's, as we call it, His providence operates here. You see God's providence, for one thing, in the exposure that He uh, places Jonah under. You know, in verse uh, 7, these uh, sailors said to each other, come on, let's throw lots so we can know on whose account this disaster's come on us. So they threw lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. So it's as if the Lord was secretly working to bring Jonah out into full view here. It was on his account, apparently, that this had happened. So he exposes him. And then you notice another thing when he's exposed like that and they do their they're questioning of him. Where are you from? What people, uh, from what people are you? What's your work? And so on. Uh, he has to answer. And he does that in verse 9. And that's his testimony. And God in his providence uses Jonah's testimony as a means of bringing truth to these pagan sailors. What's that testimony? He has to say it. Verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and Yahweh the God of heaven is the one I fear. He made the sea and the dry land. Now that's a very important statement in Jonah chapter 1. For one thing, it's right smack dab in the middle of the, of the chapter, right in the middle of the text. And these are the first words that Jonah actually speaks in the book. It's the first time he talks. Not that he never talked before this, but you understand in the the text, these are the first words that he actually says. This is his confession of faith. Is he blatantly disobedient to God's directions? Yes, he is. But he speaks the truth doctrinally about his God. And these pagan sailors hear it. So there's a testimony of truth here that God brings through a rebellious servant. That's pretty important here. Now, that's also a little scary, isn't it? Because you see in verse 9, you can speak truth, and verse 10, you can live falsely. Uh, That ought to, I know, we know this, and so on, Uh, but it ought to be a little unnerving that you can be correct in your doctrine, verse 9, and you can be unfaithful in your living, verse 10. The two can go together. That's what you see with Jonah here. And yet, God used that testimony to bring truth to these sailors. Now, you see something else here in God's working through Jonah. You notice the counsel, of course, that Jonah gives these sailors in verse 12. And they want to know, well, what can we do (laughs) that the sea could quiet down? And he says, pick me up, verse 12, and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it's on my account that this great storm is upon you. Uh, Interesting, isn't it? You see what he's saying there? I know it's on my account this great storm is on you, but I'm not changing course. Now, we need to do a little bit. This is just a kind of a footnote here that when I go on tangents, I always know I'm going on tangents. Uh, so, so this is a little tangent here. Uh, sometimes when, when you read stuff on the book of Jonah, uh, they, they make it sound like Jonah just hated pagans. He didn't like Assyrians. Uh, he, he didn't like pagans and so on. That's not true, really, or it has to be qualified uh, to some degree. 
Because if Jonah just hated pagans and was only pro-Israelite, etc., he wouldn't have told these pagan sailors how they could preserve their lives in this storm. He would have just let them go glub-glub with him. But he doesn't. He tells them. So he does. It's not that he hates all pagans, etc. That's, that's overdrawn. But you notice that Jonah here does not repent, does he? He tells them how they can be preserved alive. But it's not like he says, well, I see the point now. I'm going to sing two stanzas of I surrender all and I'll go off to Nineveh. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, here's how you fellows can be saved, but I'm going to Davy Jones' locker rather than to go to Nineveh. He is dug in his heels. So, uh, interesting, isn't it? But keep your finger there on verse 12. That can prove uh, important. But what do you see here? Well, you see unusual providence. You see, Jonah will get to Nineveh. You keep reading. But for now, God will use Jonah's stubbornness for His grace and glory and purposes as He witnesses of Yahweh to these pagan sailors. The irony here is that Jonah, in his stubborn disobedience, does not frustrate Yahweh's designs, but fulfills them. He becomes a means through whom Yahweh brings truth to these these sailors. An unusual providence. Now, God works that way. And He does that in missions. And He does that in the Christian life, etc. You see this kind of thing. Let me give you uh, a sample of it. Uh, back in about um, 1928, um, some missionaries, I think it was at that time that they, they uh, started... Uh, SIM, Sudan Interior Mission, or near that time, at least in Ethiopia and that area. And there were three, I think there were maybe three men who started the first mission state, uh, stations for SIM at that time. They uh, kind of staked out a 25,000 square mile hunk of turf and they uh, began putting, uh, I think, three mission stations that they made their priority and so on. They faced disease, uh, they faced opposition, they faced uh, all kinds of hurdles, but through medical care and so on, language learning, visiting people, natives in their homes, uh, they had a core of believers. They had them standing firm in their faith. But you know, along about a decade, well, less than a decade later, about 1935 or 1936, you remember the Italians invaded Ethiopia or Abyssinia, as it may have then been called. And so by 1938, ten years later, uh, from the time they started, all the missionaries were gone from Ethiopia. And such a fragile thing. Three partly organized churches they left. Uh, 150 believers. But there were native evangelists that still carried on in face of persecution and, and suffering and so on. But once during this time of Italian overlordship, an Italian commander uh, trying to impress the Ethiopian people 
uh, with Mussolini's war machine demanded that all the people in apparently a huge area around the area of Sadu, that all the people should come to see a parade of Italian military might. There would be, I suppose, tanks and artillery and soldiers strutting their stuff and so on. They were supposed to be impressed. So people had to come, some of them a long way. Uh, They came uh, and they stayed overnight in the homes of some of the local believers who told them about their faith in Jesus and explained the gospel to them. And some of them believed. And then then they went back. They went back to their remote areas and the gospel spread. And 1941 comes and Mussolini and the Italians are kicked out of Ethiopia and the missionaries come back and they find over 70 well-organized churches, native evangelists, and something like 10,000 believers. Strange. Unusual providence. Jesus has said, I will build my church. And then he said, I will use Mussolini to do it. It's an unusual providence of God. That's the way God works. He doesn't allow people to frustrate his designs. He uses what they think are their frustrations to fulfill his designs. Now, You can't just leave it there. That's what we observe in the way the text operates. You have to respond to that. You don't just see that. But when you see that, when you see it in the text or when we see it in experience or in history, then you have to say, isn't God creative? Isn't He ingenious? Isn't He resourceful? Shouldn't He be praised and admired and adored for operating that way? It's not just a doctrinal fact that you see in the text. You have to respond to it. You need to respond in wonder, love, and praise. Unusual providence. Let's notice a third matter here. An unexpected congregation. Verses 13 to 16. An unexpected congregation. Who would have thought that you would have a bunch of pagan sailors giving homage and worship to Yahweh, Israel's God? But that's what's depicted here, isn't it? Now you notice that they they act in desperation in verses 13 and 14. They they don't want to chuck Jonah overboard. They know what's going to happen to him if they do. They try to break to, to dry land. They can't do it. And so in desperation in verse 14... They plead with Yahweh. They say, Ah, Yahweh, please do not let us perish for the life of this man. No, we don't want to die just because he's going to, and and, and he's going to get us into that. But at the same time, we don't want to be charged with innocent blood when we chuck him overboard and so on. So so they have qualms of conscience about this. But in their desperation then, they throw him overboard, and it says the sea stopped its raging. Now, there are connections with the New Testament we can make. We just don't have time to do it this morning. But the sea stopped its raging. This would impress them in any case. And as soon as they threw him in, the storm stops. They would be impressed. It's all the more impressive because of verse 12. Because Jonah is God's prophet. 
And Jonah said ahead of time, before it happened, he said, you throw me in, the sea will stop from its raging. It will be still. He had called it ahead of time. So that when it happened, the sailors would know. That's what God's prophet said. Therefore, this is Yahweh's doing. This is no accident. This is no fortuitous uh, uh, sort of occurrence. Yahweh did this. He was revealing himself to them if they had eyes to see it. And so that brought a response, didn't it? You see, in verse 5, they were calling each one to his God. But in verse 16, the men feared Yahweh with a great fear and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they vowed vows. And this makes you ask questions, doesn't it? Because you come from the epistles of Paul, etc., etc., and from your own theology, and you might want to say, well, that's all well and good. But was this, is this genuine saving faith, you say? Well, it says they sought Yahweh in prayer. They confessed his freedom in verse 14. You have done as you have pleased. They trembled over the revelation of his presence when the sea stopped raging. They worshipped by sacrifice and vows. But you might say, but did they endure in faith? (laughs) Well, all we know is that right here, they respond fervently and faithfully and fearfully. An unexpected congregation. Excuse me, that has a little splash over into Christian experience and even mission experience. Sometimes, you know, God collects unexpected congregations that may not be in our purview. I had a fellow tell me some time ago of an experience of his. He and his wife were were set to go on the mission field and... um, all the support had been raised. Uh, they had gone through all the hoops. It, 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 it's a massive task to get to that point, and they were just on the edge of leaving, I think in a day or two. And his wife got some tests back, some medical tests. And I, I'm not sure what it was. It might have been cancer that had come. And so they were, you might say, grounded all the preparation, all the prayer, all the support, everything that was packed into that to bring them to that moment and then to not have it happen. And there she's in bed in the hospital room and he's by her side and they're wrestling in prayer, committing themselves to the Lord, but also asking him, uh, doubtless, what on earth was going on? They're puzzled over his ways and so on and in anguish over it and what can be done and all of that. Well, it happened to be one of those apparently semi-private rooms, you know, where you have the, 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 the curtain on a chain that divides the beds. And I don't know, it was for maybe the second day or something, but they, they were continuing to, to uh, commit this matter of prayer and so on. And the lady in the bed beside her threw back that curtain and she said to them, whatever it is you folks have, I want it. They explained the gospel to her. They spoke with her. 
she made a profession of faith. I think it was three weeks later she died. There was a whole, all that mission preparation apparently gone for nothing. But there was a congregation to be gathered in a hospital room that maybe hadn't been in their view, but was in the Lord's view. That's the same thing in, again, another situation at another time. In, in Ethiopia, in the history of missions, Dick McClellan was an was a, uh, Australian missionary in Ethiopia. and I, I don't know when this was. It was probably back in the 70s or, or 80s maybe. But, but uh, there were, were two men who had heard uh, natives there in, in Ethiopia who had heard strange mixture of, uh, of, of rumors about Jesus and, and just all hodgepodge uh, mixed up stuff. And, and, and they finally went to Dick McClellan. Uh, they heard about him, I guess, and they went to his mission uh, station and, and met with him, uh, met with McClellan, and there was also a native evangelist there, met with him for two or three days. Now, one of these men was a, was a witch doctor, and the other was a slave. And they um, can't go into all that right now. But they, they, so they, they taught them the gospel, and they explained. They took time with them and so on. And, and at the end of this time, they made a confession of faith in Jesus as Lord. The names were Onisa and Gibri. Onisa and Gibri left there, went back, it was about a two-day journey or so, to their own territory, and they started spreading the gospel among their own folk. Well, the Orthodox priests and the witch doctors didn't like these Jesus people, as they called them, doing this. It was cutting in on their turf. So the priests and the witch doctors had the police arrest Onisa and Gibri in order on, on charges of disturbing the peace and, and matters like that. Onisa and Gibri were taken to the village square of their, their home village. They were put face down, they were staked down, and they were whipped with a bull whip with a hundred lashes. Their backs were cut to ribbons. And then they rubbed salt in their wounds. They shackled them hands and feet, and they threw them into prison. They were in great pain. They were naked and bleeding and in great pain, and they were thrown in with convicted murderers. These murderers felt sorry for Onisa and Gibri. They'd really done nothing wrong, and here they were, battered and bleeding and shackled in their prison. And Onisa and Gibri had lost everything. Their homes were burnt down, their animals were slaughtered, their land was confiscated, their wives were given to other men, and their children were sold into slavery. They were in that prison nine months. After nine months, they were released because the authorities felt they were more of a problem in prison than they were free. You see, Onisa and Gibri had borne witness to these convicted murderers in prison and had started a prayer meeting among the murderers. Um, and a number of these murderers had trusted in Christ and it actually came about that after they had served their long terms, 
Uh, a few of them went back to their home villages and planted churches there. But now who would have ever have thought that there was a congregation in that collage of convicted murderers in that filthy prison? That may be the unusual providence of God that saw an unexpected congregation that needed to be gathered. And he used his suffering servants to do that. You never know where the living God has a congregation. He's ready to gather and or to add to. And it may be some place and somebody we've never crossed our mind. So where does that leave us? Well, you have an untamed God who uses an unusual providence to gather an unexpected congregation. Where does that leave us at the end of Jonah 1? Well, you may have, it means you may have some destruction to do. You may find that you've thought of God as a sort of a predictable, housebroken kind of deity that would never do anything you deem unreasonable. You may need to smash that graven image. And you may need to realize that God will do what He wills to do. And He may even walk over your unwillingness in order to do it. And you may need to see and to marvel at the providence that can use human rebellion as an instrument to accomplish his design and also to give praise because he's a God who gathers his people from the unlikeliest places as he once gathered us. Let us pray.